You know, for those of you who've been here the last time when we met, we raised a question of uh, can humans be good without God, right? Uh, and there were some interesting questions that came, came about in our conversation. But at the heart of every question was there, there was an assumption being made that a human being is a particular kind of creature. I mean, it really doesn't make sense of whether it's good or bad, uh, right or wrong, so on and so forth, if you don't make those assumptions of a human being. So what we're going to do today is try and answer that question. What does it mean to be human? Now, I'll give you a simple way of thinking about this. Now, I, I drank water from this cup, right? Uh, what should be done to this cup after I finish drinking water from it? Sensible thing to do is to recycle, not throw. <laughs> now, do we do that with people after they have served their purposes for us? Well, the sensible thing is to not attempt to throw or recycle. Why the difference? Why the difference between treating an object as it is an an object that is serving a particular purpose, and once it served the purpose, it is of no value any longer, as opposed to a human being, which we do our very best, at least for ourselves, we do not want people to treat us based on what we do. But we would rather appreciate people treating us for who we are. Why the difference? Right? You definitely don't ask the chair for its permission whether you could sit on it or not. Did you? But when it comes to a human being, common courtesy is that if you want something from the human being, you at least ask for permission. If you don't have permission, you call it stealing. Right? If, you, if you get a human being to do something without their permission, it's called imposing. You don't say that of the chair you sat on. You didn't impose yourself on the chair, I hope. Why the difference? Now that's at the heart of what we want to talk about today. What is so different and unique about a human being? What does it mean to be human and how can we understand this? And more importantly, as you would see it unfold, as I continue giving you my thoughts or sharing my thoughts with you, you will see that I'm arguing for a particular kind of worldview which makes sense of the observations we have, right? So it, it, when you ask the question, what does it mean to be human? It almost always depends on who you're asking. Now, it does not mean because you're asking a certain kind of person, the definition of a human being changes. The definition doesn't change. What a human is doesn't change, but how you appreciate it, how you understand it, changes. Say, for example, I actually did this exercise with a group of teenagers not too long ago. Uh, I think three or four months ago, I had a group of about 100 teenagers in the room and I asked them this question. I gave them a big picture of worldviews, right? And uh, I said, keep this in the back of your mind, but tell me this, what does it mean to be a human? And, well, when you have a bunch of hundred teenagers sit in a room, you're, you're going to have a lot of answers. And so they gave a lot of answers, you know, they gave things like it, it all the way from being intelligent and inquisitive to being compassionate and being uh, focused and being relational, all of the works. I had three whiteboards and they were all full. But then I asked them this question. 
Look at all that you have put out there and see if this fits within a naturalistic worldview. Now, a naturalistic worldview or an atheistic worldview simply says that all of life is mere chance, right? What is, what is life? What is the cosmos? What is uh, what you observe around you? It's nothing but time plus chance plus matter. <coughs> Over long periods of time, simply because of the co-location of atoms and molecules, and they came together initially which seemed to be random and then eventually because of forces or physical forces, they formed certain <coughs> patterns, patterns emerged into life. Now that's, that's what you would say if you were holding on to a pure naturalistic worldview in which means nature is all there is. Now tell me this, if you were an accident, can you be intentional? Hmm. Interesting. If human beings were by definition the product of a cosmic accident, is there even a point in raising the question, what does it mean to be human? Now, what's interesting is when you raise that question, you're actually expecting an answer. Can you have expectations of accidents? Now, very interesting. Your Intentionality goes out of the window, so does your expectation for an answer. So really a naturalistic framework, while people believe that, uh, uh, many of them embrace that, a naturalistic framework in and of itself is inadequate to answer the question, does that make sense? Well, the same problem you have if you hold on to a pantheistic worldview. Now, pantheistic worldview basically, pan means all, theos means God, which means a pantheistic worldview holds to the fact that everything is God. So you are God, the phone you're typing onto is God, so please be gentle with the buttons. <laughs> what? The chair you're sitting on is God, and so on and so forth. Now, here's the thing. If you are God, and you are engaging with a question as God, does it even make sense to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? Shouldn't you be asking the question, what does it mean to be divine? <coughs> so you have the same problem. You know, expectations and responses, expectation of a response, demands distinctions. If, if I keep talking to myself, what would you call that? <laughs> if I have expectations of, of myself to answer my questions, what would you call that? I'm not saying that people who hold on to a pantheistic worldview are in some sense intellectually deranged. That's not my point. My point is, as a worldview, again, it does not quite suffice to be able to answer the question because at the heart of a question, like what I said earlier, at the heart of the question is the distinction between the one raising the question and the one giving the answer. And there's actually a conversation going on between the two. This is not a figment of, of divine imagination. And so, at its very core, you begin to understand that unless you assume this worldview in which neither are human beings a product of a cosmic accident, nor are human beings some kind of an ignorant God. Only when you assume that can you even begin asking the question. And I want you to think about this carefully because very often we don't quite think about how critical our worldview is in the answers we give.
We assume that everybody should come to the same conclusion, but they don't. In fact, I remember uh, some time ago, this was when I was working in Dubai, one of my colleagues walked up to me and he said, you know, Joe, I think uh, we should let, and he mentioned one of his uh, team members, he said, you should let so-and-so go. I said, uh, why? He said, you know, he's, he's the weak link in the team. Uh, well, I'm setting up a software company, right? So software basically means uh, time is money. The more time you spend, the less money you make. So, and it's, it's an incentivized team, right? So he's the project lead. He comes to me and he says, Joe, I think you should let so-and-so go and ask him why. He says he's a weak link on the team. And then I asked him this. Do you remember the conversation I had with you when I interviewed you and I hired you? Uh, he said yes. And the conversation very simply was, he's incredible when it comes to doing code on his own. But he's terrible when it comes to working as a team. And I said to him, the only way you're going to succeed in growing in your career in a software path is if you grow from being an individual who types code to a person who leads a team and eventually manages projects and hopefully you can become one of the senior members on the team who handles multiple projects. That's, that was the, the idea. Uh, and I said to him, are you telling me that I should fire you? He said, no, I'm telling you you should fire this person. I said, see, the way, the way it goes is very simply this. He is your responsibility because he is part of your team. Now, I have a choice to make. My, my choice is very simply this. I have to evaluate whether the decision I made is right or wrong. I thought you will make a good team lead. Am I wrong? No, in that case, it's okay. <laughs> that was his response. Now, I want you to think about that conversation. I want you to ask yourself this question. Why did he really want the other fellow out of the team? Well, he wanted the other fellow out of the team because he was standing to lose if he remained on the team. Now, towards the tail end of the conversation, it happened in less than 10 minutes, to the tail end of this conversation, in 10 minutes, he wants him on the team. Why? Because he realizes that having him on the team is of greater benefit than not having him on the team. Because if he didn't have him on the team, he's not even going to have a job. Forget to make money at the end of the project. Is that what a human being is? And you begin to ask yourself the question, why should you even care about the other person? After all, isn't that why we go to work for? That I'll do my job and I'll earn my keep? And if someone is there who is getting in the way, then it's better for me to find a way outside of him or get around him or do away with him or her? You see, that's worldview thinking. Do you see the stark contrast over here? I was looking at it from the perspective of what would make him a better team player. He was looking at it from the perspective of what will it take for his team to make him more money. I was looking at it from the perspective of how he would be more a social person, interacting with those around him, investing himself in others, he was looking at it from the perspective of how he could be a social being, interacting with others, gaining as much as possible from the others. It's very important for us to understand the way we understand and appreciate things is deeply conditioned by our worldviews.
And so I go back to where I began. It is impossible to answer the question of what it means to be human if you come from an atheistic vantage point because there is no rhyme or reason to being human from an atheistic vantage point. That was what Richard Dawkins says. We are just, uh, you know, DNA. We are just DNA and we dance to its music. Some will get lucky, others will get hurt. That's about it. Right? There is no point in trying to attempt an answer to this question if all we are are ignorant gods. But there is something crucial to be able to answer if we realize that human beings are creatures of an intent. There is an intention behind being human. And so we need to back, work backwards and ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be human? I'm going to give you three paradigms or three grids uh, through lenses to look at this. Basically, if you look at it, a human being is someone who exercises three aspects. A human being is someone who thinks, right? There is, there is what we call that intelligence side of things, the cognition side of things. Not only do we reason and think and evaluate things, we, we appreciate things deeply. <coughs> So in as much as there is what I call the cognition strand of being human, there is also the affection strand of being human. Not only these two come to being human or make us human, you have a third strand. This is what I call the trillix of being a human being. The volition, the will. Human beings are uniquely designed by the intertwining of these three. You take any one of that, you will not find a human being there. Cognition, the emotion, and the volition. Now you put the three together, something fascinating emerges. What happens is that human beings are able to be intentional and do that creatively with a moral bent. That's what we looked at the last time for those of us who were here. Because human beings are uniquely moral. It's not that we agree with each other in a morality, but we definitely draw lines. There are some things that we agree with as right and the other things we disagree with and hold to as wrong. You, you see, the intention of a human being, you're able to do incredible things creatively, but you're also disposed to it morally. Those three strands, do you see how they intertwine and how they play itself out? Now, the space it plays itself out, again, is incredible. You have a social dynamic in which this is played out. And you have a religious landscape in which this is played. I'm not talking about what we normally observe as religion. Human beings, in their decision-making, in their volition, in their affection, in their cognition, are disposed towards the supernatural. Does this make sense? And so now the, the volition is exercised in such a way that both our social space and our religious space comes together. You have to understand how all of this works because this is our starting point. If this is what we observe, now if you disagree with me at this point, then we'll talk about it. But I believe if you just, without a bias or as much as possible acknowledging your bias, observe human beings, this is what you will see. You will see people who are deeply social have a religious bent to it. Uh, who are leaning forward to being moral beings, creatively engaging with whatever is happening in the world, 
and all along bring this threefold dynamic of themselves. They are intelligent creatures. There's a cognition side to it. They are volitional creatures. They act upon choosing and they're affectionate creatures. They hold on to it. No matter which way you go, no matter how you splice this and dice this, this is where you end up. So the question is, how do we go from here? If this is what it makes, what it takes to be human, if this is at the very core of being human, where do we go from here? So let me say this to us. You see, nature is governed by laws, natural laws. Right? Stephen Hawking would say that. I mean, any scientist would say that, but not desires. Nature is governed by laws, not plans and purposes. You see, gravity works not because it wants to. Have you ever spoken to gravity? <laughs> if you do, please ask. Do you work because you want to? That's a fascinating thing about Stephen Hawking's The Grand Design. Brilliant articulation of, of this incredible fine-tuning, but the fundamental assumption he makes when he qualifies gravity with a capital G, the fundamental assumption he's making is that gravity or the laws of physics actually wants to do something. Volition is not a property of the material. The chair you're sitting on does not want to be a chair. Now that it is a chair, it does not want you to sit on it. <laughs> well, it doesn't care whether you sit on it or not. <coughs> you understand this? Nature functions, it is operated by natural laws, but not by desire, not by plans. Creatures are governed by instincts, not wishes, wants, or dreams. I remember there's one of my friends looking at her dog lying there and kind of basically lazing on and sleeping and says this to me, I wonder what he's dreaming about. See, that's anthropological language. Humans are using language that makes sense only to humans and we impose that on animals. I'm not saying you can't speak that way. All I'm saying is that when you speak that way, you're blurring the lines of how a creature functions and how a human being functions. Humans alone, and you must take note of this, in all of creation are able to imagine, desire, and pursue dreams. That's the coming together of what I said, the cognition, the volition, and the affection. Human beings uniquely, dogs don't go around building cities. Cats don't get together to have a conference of what does it mean to be a cat. The next time you find a group of cats together, try speaking catish and they might tell you. They don't. We, creatures don't do this. Human beings do. Humans are part of nature and are creatures, that is true, but they are much more. And that's something we have to... So if we look at ourselves as merely products of time plus matter, that is a reductionistic view of a human being. If we look at ourselves as ignorant gods, that is an unreal view of being a human being. There is something incredible in where both come together, the material and the spiritual,
come together in forming a human being. So I say this to us, that a human being or humans are caused beings. We are not uncaused, making us God. We are not accidental, making us immaterial. Human beings are caused beings with a particular makeup. And here's what that makeup looks like. We are dependent or we are designed codependent persons, not accidental, isolated entities. I want you to think about that one word, accidental. If human beings were a cosmic accident, would you be able to uphold justice? Think about that. Would you be able to look at another human being and say, that's not fair? Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to take another human being by the hand and say, I deeply care for you? Would you? Everything that is precious to a human being basically vaporizes if you think of a human being as a cosmic and so it's important for us to appreciate that we are designed, not accidental. We are codependent, not isolated. And we are persons, not entities. All of us have an ID number, but we are not numbers. Now, I said there is a worldview that you work with, right? So I want to show you how, amongst all the views that we speak about, only the biblical worldview actually affirms this or provides a framework where you can think about it this way. And I say this to us, that only in the biblical view of humans is humans are humans seen as moral, religious, relational beings with the power to choose. Every word of that is important. Because every one of that is a reality for a human being. You take any one of this away, the human being you know will implode, or humanity as you know it will cease to be. Look at what's happening in the Middle East today, or what's happening in, in Myanmar or Bangladesh, or wherever you see it, one of this has been taken away. And the more of these elements are found missing or have not been granted credit or approved of, you will find that we are people who will not only suffer but inflict pain and suffering on each other. Which means the only place where all of this makes sense, if you agree with what the Bible says in the very first page, that human beings are created in the image of God. Now remember what I said to us that Human beings, as we explore it, we see there's an incredible sense of this coming together of all that is supernatural or spiritual on one side and all that is material or natural on the other. Now here's what happens in Genesis chapter 1. And this is what we are told in verse 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image, the divine speaking in spiritual terms. And then God took dust of the earth and fashioned it into a man and breathed into him and he became a living soul. All of material or matter coming together. Human beings are the unique ones who are the coalescence of both matter 
and spirit. And so there's no point trying to polarize the two. You would be subhuman if you do that. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is this valid? Does this make sense? And I think I've already mentioned this to you. There is no other worldview that actually makes sense of what you observe as a human being. It polarizes or it reduces, right? It makes it useless. So, historically, I say to you, there are four dimensions that are appropriated or attributed to being created in the image of God. And you will see how all four is what we've been speaking about all along. That is, there is a rational side of things. There is a moral side of things. There is a social side of things. And there is a spiritual side of things. In other words, a human being is intentional about how he or she lives his or her life in a social space, being accountable at two levels, one with the community that he or she is in and with God who has created him or her. Rational, moral, social, spiritual. No other worldview brings all four together. And you can take any one of this and you'll find we run into trouble. Which means that we have to ask, is there an irreducible minimum? Is there a, a human core? You take away that and we cease to be human. And I've given you four dimensions, but is there a core? And I think there is. And again, I want you to think about what we see in the biblical world. When you look at these four dimensions, rational, moral, social, and spiritual, they are at its core relational. Even knowledge is relational. There is a knower and what is known. There's a subject-object relationship even in knowledge. Can you imagine being isolated and saying, I know? That's ridiculous. Knowledge involves a subject-object relationship. Morality involves a subject-object relationship. Social space is subject or object. Unless you have said that I am a God who is forgotten, I am God, then even spirituality involves a subject and an object. Every one of these dynamics is relational. And by the way, just to get the record straight, the only worldview in which God is intrinsically relational is the biblical worldview. Hinduism has millions of gods and goddesses. They are not intrinsically relational. They are incidentally or accidentally relational. I'll give you an example of what is an incidental relationship in, in Hinduism. Uh, I don't know if you know the story or the, the creation myth in Hinduism. Hinduism has three gods uh, at its apex. Well, the ultimate god is undifferentiated and non-personal, but at its apex, there are three gods. You've got the creator god, who's called Brahman, or Brahman, which is the infinite impersonal. You've got the god who destroys things, and Shiva. And then you've got the god who sustains things, in Vishnu. Those are the three gods. They call it the Trimurti in Hinduism. Now, Brahma, who's the creator god, his affections for a goddess was so passionate that he started pursuing her. Now she didn't take too kindly to his advances and so she kept changing her form. 
Now every form she took, he took the corresponding masculine form. And they copulated and that's how creation began. So if she became a tree, he became the corresponding male tree and then they had trees. And then she became a fish, he became a corresponding male fish and they had fish and so on and so forth. Let your imagination go wild. So the relationship between these two is incidental. Creation was not intentional, it's accidental. Now, why, does, why is Shiva the destroyer? Well, again, it's incidental because he got upset and irritated with the way this was going on. So he stood up and he literally took the head of Brahma so that he would no longer do this. And that's how creation stopped, which is why he's called the destroyer. Again, incidental. So how did Vishnu get the role of the title of a sustainer? Now that Brahma is gone, there can be no creation. So, well, what, what, what should you do? You should sustain it. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I've kind of summarized about 2,000 pages for you in, in three minutes. <laughs> but at its very core, what I want you to realize is that relationality, even within a pantheon like Hinduism, where you have millions of gods and goddesses, is incidental. You go to the other end of the spectrum, take Islam, for example. God is non-relational <coughs> because he's unipersonal. The only worldview in which God is intrinsically relational is the biblical worldview where you have the Trinity. Now when you say at the very core a human being is a relational being, you can see why it makes sense to affirm that human beings are created in the image of God. <coughs> you take that relational dynamic out, it does not matter how brilliant you are, you will go mad. You take that relational dynamic out, it does not matter how upright you think you are or how upright you try to be, you will be crushed. In fact, the worst thing you can do to a human being is to put them in solitary confinement. We are not designed to be isolated entities, we are designed to be co-dependent entities. And so I say this to you as I close. Humans are cognitive, affectionate, and volitional creatures capable of intentional, creative, and moral action with an unmistakable social and religious disposition. And like I said, every word in that counts. Which means humans are unique and only the biblical explanation of humans being created in the image of God does justice to what it means to be human. You've been patient and listened to me.